Hello, everyone. As this season one of Life After That continues, you will hear the stories from several other families who dealt with the disease known as amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, ALS, or motor neuron disease, and also known as Lou Gehrig's disease. Before I continue with the episodes with people from all over the United States, as well as Canada and their stories, it's only fair uh, to them and to myself that I share my family's story and why I have a heart for telling the story of ALS, what it does to families, and also the heroes who come out on the other side and have to rebuild their lives. So my family's story actually began before my husband's story with ALS began. But for now, I'll concentrate on our own stories. June 15th, 2010. It could have been any day, but it wasn't. I remember it being a beautiful, sunny, warm, southern summer day. We had traveled about seven hours from our southeast Alabama home to Nashville, Tennessee, to see a neurologist with Vanderbilt University Hospital. Answers were what we were seeking. Answers were what we found. After a day of extensive neurological tests, the doctors came in and said, you have ALS, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. The general prognosis is two to five years of life. My husband, Bill, quickly said, well, that's not what we wanted to hear, but at least we know now what has been happening to me. Then strangely, he thanked the doctors and we all exchanged hugs. What a surreal scene that was when I think back to it. But we had been wondering. It had been a mystery for so long. And when he did that, I remember thinking, what? How could he be so calm? For once in my life, I was silent. I do believe we were in some kind of shock. He was his usual happy-go-lucky sweet self, despite the fact he had been handed a sure death sentence. Like him, though, I thank the doctors as well, but I was uncharacteristically quiet. I rarely am. And went into some kind of a getting things done sort of mode. We knew ALS was a possibility, however, because Bill had two brothers at the time, one older and one younger, who were already diagnosed with ALS. Bill's symptoms were similar, yet very different. But to hear the neurologist, two neurologists actually, sit there and say those three words together in such an empathetic way to us was earth-shattering. Neither of us remembers much about the rest of the appointment except we scheduled an ALS multidisciplinary clinic follow-up appointment for several weeks later. Those type of clinics, for those of you not in the ALS world who might be listening, is where an ALS patient and their caregivers or whoever is accompanying them can go and receive extensive care from physical therapists, occupational therapists, neurologists, speech therapists, digestive specialists, respiratory therapists, uh, pulmonologists, pretty much any specialist that has anything to do with the things that uh, the disease can cause, they kind of congregate in various places uh, called ALS clinics 
altogether, usually a day out of a month, and people come from all over. We visited a clinic in uh, Vanderbilt, as well as Emory, Emory in Atlanta. Uh, his brother saw neurologists both in Atlanta, Jacksonville, Florida, at the Mayo, as well as uh, in Vanderbilt. I think that was the only clinics we visited. They're exhausting to go to, but extremely helpful. In any case, after that appointment, uh, we kept our plans to visit downtown Nashville and listen to music on the famous street called Broadway because we had our 13-year-old daughter with us. We listened to music, we ate some pork barbecue ribs, and enjoyed our time in the music city. Though neither of us, or rather none of the three of us, brought up the true reason we were in Nashville, that elephant sat right beside us everywhere we walked or sat that evening. We tried to avoid acknowledging a very unwelcome guest, and reality had started to set in, and it was simply too ominous to even deal with. Later on, I asked Bill what had gone through his mind when the doctor gave her diagnosis. He said he was scared, didn't know what to think or what to say, and that he just couldn't believe it. He said that when he was alone later that he had cried. He said he was scared about it all and he was not sure what we were going to do uh, now that we knew for sure what he had and that he couldn't return to work. You see, by this time, Bill's balance was already terribly affected and his hand dexterity was deteriorating. He had not worked in weeks at his job uh, working in aviation electronics. Uh, Bill had previously undergone neck surgery because the doctors near home believed that surgery would alleviate his problems and that it wasn't uh, anything like ALS like his brothers had. Unfortunately, Disc surgery in his neck had no effect at all. In fact, things only got worse. I mean, we went to Nashville knowing the outcome could be ALS, but also expecting to go through with carpal tunnel surgery for both of his wrists the week when we got back home. After performing simple nerve conduction tests uh, in Nashville, the doctors said, no, it is not carpal tunnel issues. It was, in fact, ALS. The they did an extensive, painful needle electromyography, that's EMG, and it basically just told the whole story. No one with a ALS diagnosis comes out with a clean needle EMG. And I got to thinking, of course he cried. He just didn't show us because he was so strong and he rarely ever showed his own pain or his own worry. And it broke my heart that even after over 30 years together, he has had a hard time showing that to me even then. The first year after that diagnosis is pretty much a blur. We went about living and learning to survive on short-term disability benefits. I completed the Social Security Disability Application Maze, and it is a maze. Uh, we moved from our home to a handicap-accessible apartment and uh Tried to move on as best we could. I also left my job because he was already not stable enough to be at home alone. So our income went from comfortable to almost zero overnight. It was financially devastating. It was absolutely horrific on just about every level. Late in that first year, I was searching for a way to spread awareness and to simply help myself therapeutically to deal with it. I'm a writer. I'm a journalist. I, I've always been in the communication fields in some way, shape or form. And writing was my way out. 
and I loved the early days of social media. It kept me from feeling isolated too much because I was able to get on every day and talk to friends, make new friends and and do all kinds of things. But I started a blog and it was called A Day in the Life of a Real ALS Family. And most of what you've just heard now is actually taken from that blog and from a book that I converted that blog to. So I'll jump forward about a year. Uh, May 27, 2011 is when I started that blog. And I wrote in that book and that blog, for a year now, I've been trying to come to grips with my husband's diagnosis with amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, also known as Lou Gehrig's. Well, unfortunately, I have not come to grips with it at all. This disease is systematically destroying my family. We have not found the peace or the will others have. We feel lost and hopeless in a storm that will never end, it seems. That's the thing about ALS. It gives no hope. There simply is no treatment for this horrific disease. At least with cancer, you have a fighting chance, usually, but not with ALS. It is a thief of the most expert kind, and it shows no mercy for its patient or the patient's family. My children, 14 and 17 at that time, 13 and 16 at diagnosis, they are now grown, but they had to forget about growing up normally back then. They are having to skip the rest of their childhood and become adults way too soon. They have to watch things happen that no child should ever have to watch. I am mad, really, really, really mad. We have always struggled in 26 years, always seemed like one crisis after the other. Then this, wow. My marriage to the love of my life seems to be in near ruins. I am apparently angry with him and myself. He is angry with me and himself. We don't know how to talk or communicate anymore. Anger, it has taken over. Love is there, but it's in a prison called ALS. Dreams, hope, a future, all gone. One disease. Think about that. That is what our day felt like on that particular day. But a few more entries in that blog later, the sun came back out. Things started looking up, not so much with the disease, but we adjusted and figured out how to make it through each and every day. It got hard, though. It was so hard. It's hard for me to revisit all of this. Um, My husband passed away five years ago in 2017. It has taken me this long to actually be able to do what I'm doing right now, which is to go back and revisit some of those memories and to start this podcast uh, for lots of other subject matter, but to start it off with ALS and to talk to others about their journeys with ALS and how they've rebuilt their lives afterwards. It's really taken a long time for me to get to this point myself, but I can say that I can actually sit here. I can read things from the book, from the blog. I can talk freely and I'm not breaking down crying. And that's uh, really, really good because it wasn't too long ago that I could not do this. There was no way. And there are absolutely still things that I still can't do. I still can't open the Rubbermaid containers that still has some of his clothes in there. 
because this minute I smell his smell coming from those shirts that have been laundered, but his smell is there. I have to shut the lid. I, I can't do it. So there's still things I can't do. Uh, if I'm out and about and I happen to hear someone coughing or making choking sounds, say in a restaurant or a store anywhere, it sends me into a sweat and my heart races and I panic because for almost every day for seven years, my bill choked, sometimes just on air, but gobs of saliva that ALS seems to to produce. They say it's no more saliva than the normal person produces, but they just don't swallow it or don't process it the same or whatever. I still think it makes more saliva. I, I, I disagree with it. It's not more. It's really unreal. So it's really hard. But let me take a moment and back up before this diagnosis and let you know my husband probably went to the doctor five times or less in 30 plus years. He was extremely healthy. He had been an athlete in his youth. He still ran and jogged. He was just a very uh, active, uh, happy uh, person who worked hard and loved his family, loved his friends, loved his job, loved his God, loved his church, loved to sing. You know, nothing could have ever prepared us or him for getting this life-altering, life-ending disease even though he had two brothers already with it, they had been living with the disease uncharacteristically over 10 years by the time my husband was um, diagnosed. And uh, while theirs seemed to progress very uh, similar, uh, they even looked similar in terms of how their bodies wasted away. Uh, my bill did not look that way. His started differently. He held on to 210 pounds the entire time. He never wasted away to a skeleton. His brothers kept their voices for many, many years. My husband lost his voice within the first couple of years and lost the ability to eat within like three years and got a feeding tube. So it was just very, very different for him compared to his brothers. So there was really... Honestly, at that point, we assumed it was a familial ALS situation, but, you know, you put those things aside and hope that it's not. Um, I will say briefly here that um, actually recently, in recent weeks, my husband's uh, sister, one of his two sisters, also passed away with ALS. So out of six children in that family, it's taken four and a few of them ha did have genetic testing and different tests. And to my knowledge, there's been no similarities found within their genetic makeup or anything. So I guess we don't really know what kind of ALS is doing this to this family. So it's kind of scary. And my children are very matter of fact. They'll tell you they're glad that they're adopted so that they don't have to worry about at least a familial form of that disease. So I will back up now and go back to some thoughts. Um, February 2nd, 2012, my blog uh, online said, this is so hard, much harder than I ever imagined. Over the last year and a half since Bill's diagnosis with ALS, I have researched, read, prayed, thought about, and acquired whatever information or equipment that I thought we might need when he got to a point where he could not do it for himself. 
As of the first of the year, I was sure we had at least another year or two before such a thing would happen. We forgot other things in life can sneak up and mess things up, even more than ALS alone. It's not good to assume ever, as they say. First came the broken humeral head, the ball at the top of his shoulder, on his birthday. Then he had a GI bleed from throwing up when a pain medicine made him sick. Then he spent nine days in the hospital. Then, wow, I knew one day ALS would make Bill not be able to move much of anything other than his eyes. I thought I had mentally prepared for the day when he needed total care. I thought wrong. No, ALS has not paralyzed him yet, but he was barely mobile before the shoulder break. Now with his good arm immobilized, his legs too weak to allow him to walk, his left hand just about useless, he is suddenly 100% dependent on me. He cannot scratch his own itches, and there are many for some reason with ALS. He cannot feed himself. He cannot change the television remote. He can only hold the phone up for a few seconds. He cannot shift in the bed to make himself comfortable. He cannot do the personal things in life that we all take for granted. This is so hard for him. He's so independent. This is so hard for me. This is so hard for our daughter. This new normal stinks. And of course, it was hard for our son, too. But by this time, he had also moved uh, out to a different town to live with my sister and her husband and family to work an internship or an apprenticeship. So he actually was not there for the day to day during this time period. It was super, super hard. Bill had to uh, move from our bed to a hospital bed. I wound up in a twin bed across the room from him. And, you know, at this point, we were really, we were only a year and a half into this, but yet we had already lost so much. We were struggling financially. We missed each other as husband and wife. I miss sharing the same bed. It was just a really super difficult time. And I know everyone goes through all of this that goes through ALS. And I wanted to mention the being paralyzed. When we say someone is paralyzed with ALS, it's not like someone who, for instance, has a severed spinal cord where they can't move their lower part of their body, depending on where the the severing of the spinal cord occurred. But with ALS, they actually still feel everything. They just can't command the muscles. And so a lot of people used to think, well, he can't feel anything at least. So if he's having pain, I'm like, oh no, he feels everything, probably tenfold, if not more. Um, have you ever laid in the bed and your sheet has a wrinkle in it? And you know, you can't get comfortable. And it feels like that wrinkle is burning into your skin. And you just have to squirm and move and get your sheet straightened out just to get comfortable. A person with ALS can't do that. If there's not someone there to listen to them and if they can't talk and they can't, you can't hear their groan or you don't hear the little bell they ring for you to come fix it, then they get to feel like a match is burning into their skin in that one spot. So for caretakers like myself, you know, during the night, we don't sleep very much because there might be a breathing machine going on. There might be a ventilator going on. We didn't have a vent. We had a BiPAP, which was to help him expel carbon dioxide that builds up in ALS um, victims' lungs and actually can kill them. 
I would listen for that machine. I would listen for him to moan. I would listen for his little bell that he could move with his finger. So it was hard to sleep at night. So most caretakers are very sleep deprived. We get up every couple of hours to turn them or prop a wedge under them so they can, their bodies don't get body sores. And, you know, maybe they have to go to the bathroom where they can't just get up and go to the bathroom at some point. You have to take them to the bathroom or you have to do other things. And without getting too gross here, I won't go any further with that. Uh, Just to say it's a full-time job that never ends. And it goes on 24 hours a day, seven days a week for the duration. If you're lucky enough to have the financial beans or so that you can have help, that's great. We did have hospice came in really early and we're so thankful for them. They came in almost daily, if I remember correctly. So getting helps with baths, which was really hard for him to allow that. <clears throat> but getting help with baths and was a great help. And during that hour of time when someone else was helping with him, I was able to catch up on laundry because I might do three to five loads of laundry a day, towels and sheets every day, or that hour might be used to take my daughter and we would go to the bookstore and find a comfy chair for 30 or 40 minutes, or we might go grab a treat somewhere or go to the pet store and pet animals, just something to get out of the house. Because for about three years there, it was like being trapped with no out. I know I went at least three years without a respite, without a break. And it it took a toll on my health as well. So it was really, really hard, really hard. Um, so life after that diagnosis, we thought we had had hard times in the past and things only got harder. But at the same time, we laughed. We laughed every single day. Because otherwise you cry every day. So you have to make a decision to find cheer no matter the circumstance. Even when accidents of the most gross kind happen, somehow you have to turn it around. You have to laugh about it and you move on because that's what gives you strength to go on the next day. And that's easier said than done. I get it because some days... It was really hard to find any amount of cheer or joy or anything to be thankful for. So it was hard. It really was hard. But, you know, as part three in my book and on that blog says, and the beat goes on. Occasionally, we would have people to come over uh, to do Bible studies and study groups. And they came over and shared meals with us for the holidays, even if Bill couldn't eat or could only eat a tiny bit. It was still so great because we had a lot of people from our church family in Dothan, Alabama, Westgate Church of Christ, uh, some of our friends out of College Avenue in Enterprise, Alabama during those times. Um, you know, they really came through for us and came and provided meals and visits and calls and cards and financial help from time to time. We had strangers who sent Money. We had family members from other uh, areas that helped us. And, you know, it just I don't think we could have made it without all of that. Uh, it was super, super hard, super hard. Um, I will tell you 
that one of the, the hardest thing, I asked another person that interviewed for this podcast, and you'll hear, hear her episode coming up uh, in a week or so. One of the things that a lot of us miss the most was our pals, our person with ALS. We miss their voice. Oh, my goodness. I wish I had known to record his voice and tuck a recording away somewhere because he lost his voice so quickly. We had not heard about voice banking, and I think that was a fairly new concept in 2010, 2011. So unless I happen to come across an old video that has a little snippet of his voice, I honestly can't remember my husband of nearly 34 years. I can't remember what he sounded like before ALS. I mean, it's crazy. And you miss the voice. You miss the hugs. Oh, my gosh. I, I can't I can't even believe how much I miss his hugs and his voice. It's just so hard. Um, even now, I, I miss that so much. I can't, you know, I said in my blog, I know more than once over those three years that I kept the blog that I can't fathom life without Bill. And yet here I am five and a half years later. And I've really tried to suck it up and move on. That first year was hard. The second year was even harder. And all I can say is I learned to reinvent myself and I live by his mantra, which the book that I wound up converting the blog to, which is called How ALS Changed Everything, Learning to Keep on Keeping on. And it is on Amazon. I learned to keep on keeping on because that's what he said. Do someone asked him one time how he could keep smiling and why was he always happy when he could barely talk? He couldn't eat. He it, it was just such a hard life. And he spelled on his little ABC chart, what would being mad do for me? What would be what would be sad? What would that do for him? He chose to be joyful. He chose to be happy. He chose to make a life from that wheelchair with no voice and a body that basically didn't work with the exception of one arm and one hand. And he spent his last couple of years in a nursing home because his care became too much for me. And even there, that man touched the lives of the staff. There are people from that took care of him, the nurses and aides that are still a part of my life, albeit mostly on social media. They're still there, I think them so much for the love and care they gave him. But he would drive that wheelchair around. He would play music for those with dementia and give them joy. He would pass out, God has this bracelets. He found a way to live and affect others in a positive way. So after about a year of mourning and maybe another half year of just being mad, I finally had to kick my own tail and say, you know what? That man fought so hard to be happy and to live and to keep on keeping on, as he would say, how dare I do any less than that when I've been given a life? So with that mantra of keep on keeping on, I ask you to join me for the next episode, and I'll tell you what I've done with my life since I lost the love of my life in late June of 2017.